Tonight, I thought that we would look at mindfulness itself as a practice in various ways. Since there's been uh, so much uh, spread of this term mindfulness and uh, it's become used in so many secular situations, I'm not going to be focusing on those secular situations at all, but at the end, if there's any question that comes up about that, it would be appropriate. But what I want to do is um, have us first look at what composes mindfulness when it matures as a practice in Buddhism. And this is mindfulness, the, the word sati, S-A-T-I, this mindfulness that's part of the Eightfold Path. So that's our focus. The mindfulness, the way it's used in other settings, does not refer to the mindfulness of the Eightfold Path because it doesn't include all the other factors of the Eightfold Path. And that's what makes mindfulness mindfulness. That's what makes sati sati is, is its, its contextual meaning. It's, it's not an independent factor in the Eightfold Path. You can think of the Eightfold Path, as I sometimes say it's like a blanket with eight folds. There's only one path, there's not eight paths, and you can pick this one out and, oh, the other ones don't matter. They're, they're entwined. It's, it's one path uh, that that's, uh, uh, carries us uh, to our, our destination, to our journey here. So to look at the mindfulness when it matures, what, is it, what does it look like? What does it feel like in the actual practice of it? And then secondly, to look at mindfulness as a, a kind of phenomena of activity of mind. And there's different activities of mind that occur, and I'll take you through those as I perceive them. And then to uh, briefly look at where mindfulness leads. So I, 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 you know, I've worked and I've worked, and I, I start to really have some skill of mindfulness what happens in? What happens in my life? What happens? Where does this go? What, is, what, what actually is the fruit, if you will, of mindfulness in this way? And I'm going to see how it goes to, uh, at the end of each of these three parts to take questions at the end of each part. And just a couple of questions, but uh, I encourage you, if you have a question, to at uh, that time when I ask for it, to hold your hand up and we're going to bring a microphone to you so that everyone can hear your question. The reason it's worth pausing to reflect on this, even though some of you have quite a bit of practice, we always want to be updating what we're about so that we have clarity because the mind becomes quite entangled. The Buddha would often talk about the entanglement of the mind, just how entangled it was and all sorts of activities that were not helpful to it. And uh, so we get our, get our ducks in order here in terms of how we're practicing, which brings me to a cartoon from The New Yorker in which there are these four ducks in a row. The, the ducks are in order. And one of the ducks is saying to the other ducks, I fail to see why this is such an achievement, <laughs> having their ducks in a row. Why is it such an achievement to have our ducks in a row? And uh, it's a very fair question. We don't want to um, get into a conceptual uh, uh, overlay of our direct experience, as I mentioned 
with the breath. We don't want to have the concept of breath that we're being with. Oh, this is breath. I know breath is, there's, breath is made up of this exchange in and out of the air from outside to the inside, da, da, da. A bunch of concepts are, oh, I'm watching the breath like I'm up on the ceiling watching someone breathe. In mindfulness, it's the direct experience. That's what makes mindfulness so powerful, is it's a non-conceptual way of knowing such that we then lead to insight. And we'll see that everything that's, that we're working with leads to insight in this way. Mindfulness, 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 sati, sati. Mindfulness is made up uh, the way, uh, this is what I came to in my own practice, and uh, the, the Venerable Sumedho, my teacher, who is uh, now retired and living in Thailand, but who was just here, whom I got to spend Friday afternoon with, actually most of Friday, um, he, he teaches this in a very similar way. It, mindfulness starts with a kind of alertness. So the first component of mindfulness is that you're alert to what's arising right now in your experience. You notice. There's a noticing. This noticing is not the same as investigating. It's just a noticing. You're not uh, oblivious to. So you just you say, I noticed that, you know. When I came in, I noticed that you had changed something in your garden. What have you changed? Or, oh, I noticed you've planted a tree. Or you notice, oh, you know, there's a, there's a feeling in the office today. Or you notice that someone's energy seems uh, seems really low today. You just notice. You don't have a lot of thoughts about it. You're just noticing. There's an alertness to what's there. And this is, without this, this initial awakeness in that way, this initial receptivity to the internal and external environment, you know, we're sort of just walking through life oblivious. And often we can do that if we're not careful for emotional reasons, for fatigue, for a, a kind of um, a not trusting life, being worth showing up for. All sorts of things can happen to us. So alertness is the first part of mature mindfulness. In Pali, the language of the Theravadan text, that's called vitaka, this alertness. The second part of mature mindfulness is this ability to stay with the experience. Uh, the, the teacher Upandita would talk about that our, our mind rubs against it, that we keep rubbing against it. Or I, I think of it more as that we've noticed something and then we can rest our attention on it long enough to then get to really know what's going on. Because otherwise, you don't, you don't get a chance to uh, have a real relationship with something. You notice it, but, but it, then it's gone. So this staying with, this, this, uh, it's called vachara in Pali again in the, in the, the text. It has, this, it has this ability to stay with something even if it's unpleasant. Because if it's unpleasant, you know, there's a little veering away. Who wants to stay with unpleasantness? The unpleasantness and pleasantness are both part of what's called the second foundation of mindfulness in the Buddha's main uh, instruction teaching on 
mindfulness practice, the Satipatthana Sutta. So we we this this vachara this this staying with quality stays with something if it's unpleasant or if it's pleasant. If it's unpleasant, we want to veer away from it. But if it's if it's pleasant, we start wanting it. So our mind goes to the wanting rather than staying with the actual experience of it. An example that I've used repeatedly is you you walk up Mount Tam to see the sunset. And there you are, just as the sun's going down in the ocean. It's so beautiful. And at first, you know, that first moment you go, oh, I got here just in time. And there it goes. You're, oh, oh. And then you think, I need to do this more often. Oh, you know, I should bring so-and-so up here. <laughs> what happened to being with the sunset? How quickly that happens. A taste. You know, this is your favorite meal at some restaurant. You take that first bite, oh, this is so good. You're really feeling the bite. The second one, mm, you know, I, I need to come here more often. Or you get to telling some story and you miss the taste of the food that you're paying a lot of money for, that you've cared so much about. How quickly we lose the experience when we are not being mindful. So mindfulness allows us to stay with the experience. And in that sense, when it's pleasant, that means we're enhancing the joy of the pleasantness because we're staying with it. And ironically, if it's unpleasant, we are actually better off being with the unpleasantness of it rather than veering away because we don't ever get rid of the unpleasantness when we're turning away from it. But when we stay with it, we see that it arises and passes like everything that is uh, composed. That's the, one of the key teachings of the Buddha, this, the truth of Anicca, that everything is in flux. Everything's changing in that way. So we're alert to what arises, we stay with it, and then we fully receive it in a mature practice. That is, we mostly have it as an embodied experience. Our bodies are here, it registers in our bodies, it registers in our hearts, and we feel what it's doing to our mind, to the head center, better said. It is an embodied experience. This fully receiving it gives us the uh, import of it. Oh, I really care about this. Actually, my feelings are hurt right now. We wouldn't have known that because we turned away because it's unpleasant. But by staying with, we can fully receive it. Or, oh, I'm, I don't feel safe in this situation, in this meeting. Very valuable information. But the unpleasantness of it could have caused us to not get the information because we, wanted to, we want to feel okay. We want to fit in. So therefore, we act blindly and put ourselves at risk in a situation. Or, I'm pushing too much on this. Here I am with my son or daughter. I've given my advice. Now I'm actually alienating. I'm reducing the chance of them listening at all and fully receiving because we care so much that we want them to listen that we don't fully receive what's going on in this moment, which is that I'm losing. I'm losing the attention of my child. So this fully receiving the experience empowers us within the experience. And it is uh, sati, mindfulness, it's, it's purpose having to do with our own gaining of insight, which we'll get to later, this fully receiving is what allows the mindfulness to lead us to uh, insight. It is one of the conditions, this 
mature this mature mindfulness, mature sati, is what allows that, that creates the conditions where insight is more likely to arise. You cannot say, I'm going to go practice some insight. Insights arise due to causes and conditions. We can somewhat, modestly, 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 affect those conditions. And that's, that's what we do with mindfulness and other things too in the Vipassana practice. The fourth part of mindfulness is that we have uh, that we have this capacity of investigation. This capacity of investigation, and I take that investigation in a, uh, a twofold way. There's a kind of curiosity that fulfills the alertness aspect. There's a curiosity. We're curious. We cultivate the natural curiosity of mind, and all of our minds are innately curious. However, they can be deconditioned or may have been deconditioned from their natural curiosity. And therefore, this directing attention, the spotlight of attention that's part of the Eightfold Path, is how we uh, develop more curiosity. We bring the curiosity back to life again. So this, this, there's a curiosity about, oh, what's going on here? We want to know what's going on. We want to be alert. We want to fully receive it. We're curious. We'd rather be present than not be present. It's a value choice. It's a value choice. I choose to be present. Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, I choose to be present. I would rather be present than try to cherry pick present and unpleasant, pleasant and unpleasant. Because it turns out we cannot cherry pick. We're either present or not. We're developing this capacity to be present or not. We do not get to cherry pick. I know it's tempting to think, oh, I will do that. Just try. Just try. One day, see what happens. Just say, I'm only going to be, I'm only going to be mindful when it's pleasant. See what happens. Would not even be very wise in terms of staying safe, but it's not possible anyway. And then uh, the, the, the investigation aspect of this is when, uh, so we're not just curious about it, we realize uh, that curiosity says, this is important. I really want to understand this. It could be, uh, we want to investigate it in terms of its effect on our life and our behavior, something that's going on in our mind or something that's going on out in the world. From Dharma practice, from the, the Buddha Dharma, we investigate to see how it relates to the Buddhist teachings of how things are. This has to do with the hindrances. It has to do with what, what are the factors of awakening that lead to liberation. It has to do with uh, the, all the, the awareness of the body, the awareness of pleasant and unpleasant. We are, we are, we are investigating from understanding Dharma. We're understanding Dharma. We're understanding how things are so that we can find liberation from suffering. And then... The, the final part of the mature practice is that we treat experience from an impersonal basis. We are we're more interested in the phenomena of that experience rather than the, the soap opera of it. So someone betrays us, we're much more interested in the feeling of betrayal as, as, as phenomena of mind rather than I'm so stupid, I should have known better, how could they have done that, da, 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 you know, this is my, you know, we're, we're interested in, what is this like? What is this like feeling so shocked in this moment? 
What is this like? What, what am I wanting to do? Am I blaming myself? Is that helping? We, we, we're interested in the wisdom and the compassion. We're not so interested in the shot, who shot John. We want to learn for the future, but we're not interested in, in getting all of the melodrama going. There's an impersonalness. We understand that everything that happens is part of what life. And it's impersonal. Life is like this. Everybody gets angry. Everybody gets confused. Everybody gets excited. Everybody knows love in some way. And on and on and on. That these are, these are part of the human experience. How do we relate to them with compassion and with wisdom? So that's, that's what we're interested in. And that's an impersonal kind of knowing. But that is not indifference. That in no way means indifference. This is the bad rap sometimes about about Buddhism. Oh, Buddhism is indifferent to life. Not so. Not so at all. The Buddha was motivated to teach by compassion and he taught these core principles because that's what leads to the end of suffering. These core principles, understanding them. But he also, when talking to uh, uh, various lay gathered groups in these various villages, talked about all the regular kinds of happiness and what to do with those. And, uh, and he, was, he was encouraging of people's well-being in the ordinary sense of it. He was not dismissal of ordinary, dismissing of ordinary life in that way when you actually look at the suttas. So there we are. We've, we, we, as our practice matures, we're able to notice what's happening in the moment. We're able to stay with it long enough to fully receive it, to, have, to, to investigate it as is appropriate, and we don't get lost in it. We've got equanimity and compassion enough that allows us to not get lost when we stay present. Because otherwise we will get lost in it. We'll get lost in the wanting or in the aversion to it. I refer more and more to what I teach as compassionate mindfulness. Because without a cultivation, a regular cultivation of compassion, life's too hard to meet, to really meet and show up for it. Just what's going on in the world at large right now. It's very difficult to stay with the fact of all of the terrible violence that's happening right now as we sit here. We, we shut it out without a compassionate mindfulness. The mindfulness, it's just too much to open to. Likewise, even with our, our own immediate life, the, the, uh, the, the times we feel uh, disoriented, insecure, um, frustrated, uh, we're, someone we're worried about that we deeply care about, uh, someone being disappointed in us or wanting something from us, on and on and on. We, sh we shut out so much of life if we don't have a compassionate mindfulness. With compassionate mindfulness, it comes in and is known, but it is not taken possession of. We don't make it a me or mine. It's known without becoming a belonging. This is one of the beautiful things about the Buddha's teaching, is this non-identification with. That's the non-identification that's taught in the second noble truth. This uh, not falling into thirst around experience. So it's quite something, this little simple thing of mindfulness, huh? You know? And it's just being present. But it's being present with a direction, with an intention. So mindfulness and intention come together. Without intention, mindfulness doesn't have a direction. We could be mindful of just what we want, 
or we'd be mindful of, oh, I can, I can see that this person can be manipulated in this way. So mindfulness fits into a context that's ethical in nature, that's called sila, and mindfulness fits into, a, 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 as a practice, because it's, it's its own practice, of, of a wisdom. So the wisdom and, and the ethics. It's, it's because without those two, then mindfulness is, is, um, can, is, is, um, it, it, is, it, is, it has no ethical base one way or the other. It is the context that gives mindfulness its ethical base. So you can say that sati is always, is always uh, positively, ethically, but only because it's sati, not because of mindfulness as a phenomena of being present. The thief, as I've said in here before on Monday night, a thief breaking into your apartment when you're asleep in the bedroom so that they can steal something, uh, uh, your computer off the living room table, is very mindful. They're very mindful. That's part of what gives uh, the, the thieves a high, is that huge concentration in, of being present to every little sound and all. They get a chemical hit. This is uh, something that uh, the social psychologists have talked about because it, it is, there's a, there's a chemical, positive chemical hit from that kind of concentration. It's just, it's, it's amoral, it's, it's, it's not immoral, it's just that hit, that concentration brings a chemistry, chemical release that we, we like. So, we, so our mindfulness is the mindfulness to bring about the end of suffering. That is why we're doing this. We don't create more suffering on the way insofar as we have choice, and we, uh, we're, we're, we're developing a greater range of choice in the process. Quite, quite beautiful in that way. This is a little poem by, uh, by Mary Oliver, and it's called The Uses of Sorrow. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this too was a gift. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this too was a gift. Mindfulness has this capacity to see things as they are, to not get caught in the soap opera, to see that even the difficult has its wisdom, has its value. Its mindfulness is non-discriminatory in that way. It's non-discriminatory in that way. It's willing to be mindful of anything that is. That's so powerful for us. Once we really know that, we don't have to be afraid of what someone's going to say to us. We don't have to be afraid of what we might feel. We understand that we can be present with, with any experience without it taking over our minds. We, in time, understand that the more mindful we are, the more choice we have. So therefore we choose mindfulness so that we choose choice. We get to choose having choice. It's so wholesome, the Buddhist teachings in this way. So wholesome. So, once we understand and once we see that our mindfulness is growing, we then can start 
seeing, well, how is this working in my life? What really actually, what is happening as a mental activity? And one of the things that happens is cognizing. You're cognizing. You're being aware of something. You're having something is registering. Not only is your, is your um, chest a little cool right now, which you would be registering by wrapping something around you, but not necessarily being mindful of it. But you, not, so not only is a moment of consciousness happening, you are mindful of that moment of consciousness happening. In Buddhist psychology, there, at any moment, there is a, for it to register at all, there's a kind of consciousness that's called vijnana. And it's, it's, it, it allows the moment to happen. It, there's some degree of consciousness, and that's why, that's why you know about it and, and respond to some moment. But beyond that, with mindfulness, there is this, not only is, is something happening, like you're right now, you're interested. There's, this, there's an energy of interest. You realize, oh, I'm interested. You know that you're interested. So you can have interest, like, oh, this is interesting to me. So you're, you're, but that doesn't mean that you know you're interested. But the mindfulness, with mindfulness, you know, this isn't just interesting. I know I'm interesting. That is a, like a supercharged kind of uh, consciousness in that way. Because when, when we know what we're conscious of, we see how it's affecting us. To give the most basic uh, example of that is this dance of pleasant and unpleasant. When something registers in the mind, whether we're conscious of it in, a, in this mindfulness way or not, if it's pleasant, we want it. If it's unpleasant, we don't want it. And our, our behavior, our thoughts, what we say, what we do, will be dramatically conditioned by this, these strings of, of pleasant and unpleasant. And we are in many ways like a, a puppet dancing on this string of pleasant and unpleasant without mindfulness. Uh, this has been, uh, you know, a hundred different universities have had hundreds of graduate students in psychology writing their papers on mindfulness, proving this in various ways. This is not a controversial issue in any way any longer. That it, it is the power of the, of the mind that's response to pleasant and unpleasant that causes so much. To pleasant and unpleasant, to past associations, to the way we've been conditioned. If we are mindful that we are uh, having a view of someone because of past condition, then we're not just a slave of how we've been conditioned, we have choice in relation to it. So this, this, uh, this cognizing of what's being known is a very important part of this. A second part of this activity of mindfulness is that there is a reflective contemplation around it. This reflective contemplation it gives us uh, the ability to um, do the investigation. Oh, what is this? Where there's, there's a kind of hmm feeling to it. There is um, uh, this, uh, this contemplation comes from, uh, in Latin, it's this completio, this, this root word which also means temple, or the, this clear space right in front of an altar. So a mindfulness in its contemplative Reflective contemplation gives us space around the experience. So, you know, if we're really we're angry, our nose is at the window of anger. 
If we're really wanting something, we're just pulled by that anger. This, this, the, the contemplative aspect, we're reflecting on it. There's a little space. Whoa, look at this anger. We're still angry. We're having all this angry thought about this person. But we're, well, look at this anger. Whoa. There's an awakeness. You, can you feel the choice that arises just there? And then uh, the, the, uh, uh, in, in, in the, uh, the, in the uh, ancient Greeks and their philosophy, this, this, uh, there was a kind of theoria, a kind of prayer, or what we would call meditation, this contemplative meditation, that was often used in terms of uh, this, this idea of henosis or a unity or a oneness. So in Western culture, we have in our very basic roots this, this idea that is reflected in the mindfulness, that through mindfulness there is a kind of spaciousness and it leads to a kind of um, a higher experience of, of unity, of well-being, of a oneness with, with things that are, uh, that are the opposites in some way, that there's something is brought together in this. And this contemplative space, this reflective contemplative space, because it's not, it's not identifying with what's arising, creates this possibility. It's a beautiful aspect of mindfulness. And uh, all the retreat teaching I do, I watch with such delight, listen with such delight, feel with such delight. When someone comes in and reports something that they've been dealing with for days on this retreat, suddenly they really became mindful of it. And it's now easeful. And there have been such pain, such suffering around this. Oh no, they're just mindful of it. It just is. It's a story. It's a body problem, a difficulty in the body. It's a worry. But it just is what it is. It's not more than that. It's just what it is. That's, that's what can arise. And then, um, uh, as, as, we, as we have this reflective capacity come up, we, um, we can develop a number of the qualities that are called the paramis, these qualities of, of mind-heart that allow us to uh, grow in our humanness, to grow in our capability of humanness. And it's they, they, there's in our Theravadan tradition, there are ten of these. In the Tibetan tradition, there's six of them. But, and they include everything from generosity to wisdom to resolve and so forth, and include patience. So because we, we've got some space around our experience, we can be patient with it. This is a poem by Tony Hoagland. And it's from his book, What Narcissism Means to Me. Patience. Success is the worst possible thing that could happen to a man like you, she said. Because the shiny shoes and flattery and the self-lubricating slime of affluence would mean you'd never have to face your failure as a human being. (laughs) There was a rude remark I could have made back to her right then. And I watched it go by like a bright blue sailboat 
on a long gray river of silence. That's mindfulness. That gave him choice. There was a rude remark I could have made back to her right then, and I watched it go by like a bright blue sailboat on a long gray river of silence, watching it until it disappeared around the bend. Contemplation, this reflective contemplation where we don't grab hold of the stimulation. Watching it until it disappeared around the bend while I smiled and listened to her talk, thinking it was good to let myself be stabbed by her little spears because I wanted to see what I was made of besides fear and the desire to be liked by every person on the goddamn face of the earth. (laughs) To tell the truth, I felt a certain satisfaction in taking it, letting her believe that I was just a little bird opening my mouth and swallowing the medicine she wanted to administer, a mixture of good advice combined with slow-acting poison. Is it strange to say that there was something beautiful in the sight of her running wild, cut loose, in an epileptic fit of telling the truth? And anyway, she was right about me. That I am prone to certain misconceptions. That I should never get so big or fat that I can't look down and see my own naked, dirty feet. This is this humility of mindfulness which is why I kept smiling and smiling as she talked. It was a beautiful day. I felt like crying. I knew that if I could succeed at being demolished, I could succeed at anything. Patience. Being mindful. Sometimes the, the, the message really needs to be separated from the messenger or the form of the message. I do a whole Dharma talk on that very subject. Because the message is what we want to be mindful of, not who the messenger is or the form the message is being delivered in. What's the value of this? What's the truth of this? What what is this saying about that which I care about in others and in myself? Mindfulness and this contemplation aspect has has the room to see that, this clear space of our values. The clear space of our values is how we is, is the way we we understand our experience. We never experience anything without being from a perspective. It's just impossible. Where we stand matters. And and with mindfulness, we're standing standing in this place of of seeking wisdom, of meeting moment with compassion. That's powerful. That's powerful. It changes our experience. So uh, inquiry is, uh, is when we act, and this is the third, so that there's the cognizing, there's the, the, the reflective contemplation, then there's inquiry where we actively ask ourselves question around something that we're mindful of. So that might be uh, where we're, we're seeing, well, I'm, I'm feeling such restlessness here. I'm so restless, I'm so restless. We know some, we're being mindful of the restlessness. And then sooner or later we go, hmm, nothing's changing about this restlessness. So, if I wasn't feeling restlessness right now, what would I be feeling? 
Oh, disappointment, disappointment. Oh, so this restlessness was a secondary or even a tertiary response to, the, to this disappointment. I was trying to be mindful. I was being as mindful as best I could, but I'd gotten so, because the aversion to the disappointment, my mind had already gone into this restlessness before I caught it. The inquiry brought me back to what's really happening right now, which is disappointment or excitement. We can get knocked off center by pleasant and unpleasant equally. So this inquiry in that way allows us to really, to really find what's true. We do various ways of inquiry. We go, oh, I've, this, is, uh, this, is, this is a regular pattern in my life. I see, what is this pattern? Oh, it, it comes with wanting mind. I get into wanting mind and then I get too excited over wanting mind. And it's the excitement. It's not really what the wanting, but as I'm really staying with it, I can say, no, it's, it's the excitement. I, I, don't, I, I don't have enough equanimity in my practice. I don't have an equ enough equanimity in my work life, wherever it may be. The inquiry allows this, these little, what are like personal insights in that way. One of the uh, key ones that uh, the Venerable Sumedho teaches uh, that's, that's for long retreats is you're sitting there hour after hour in, in between the walking and all, and you ask yourself, as soon as you, first you become aware of your thoughts, and then you ask yourself, who's having these thoughts? And you keep looking, who's having these thoughts? Trying to see if you can find who's having the thoughts. You're wanting something. Who is it that's wanting this? It's a form of inquiry. This is all part of the mindfulness, the inquiry, the reflective, the cognizing. So I'm going to pause there for a moment and uh, see if anyone has a question. Was this, is this clear enough to you? So any question that anybody would like to ask. You're among strangers, but you're also among community. It's okay. Somebody got there. Um, hi, I'm going to try and phrase this. Actually, will you say your just your first name? Uh, Susan. Susan. Hi, Susan. Um, so, in the, the full understanding that um, you know, when somebody keeps. Um, trying to relive that goodness from the outside of somebody else's response and is patterning a whole set of behavior from yourself that they need that reconfirmation so often and it begins to be energy draining. But you don't want to be cruel and, right. and yet of course part of you is a little irritated by it. Um, <laughs> What, in what way, I mean, I just keep trying to sit there with compassion for knowing that there's pain behind that yes. need. And yet, um, it's, I, I don't know how to um, 
So that person needs your your uh, confirmation of, of of their worthiness or their that, that to confirm that, that this is what happening that what they're feeling what is they what they're feeling. What they keep saying is that I don't feel seen, I don't feel heard because they need me to keep mirroring to them mm -hmm. so whatever that reliving yes. that they're doing. And so then then is the question: What does one do in that circumstance? Yeah, as though my intention is to stop pain and suffering with them mm -hmm. and yet my intention is to not cause my own pain and suffering mm -hmm. at um, I don't have physically and potentially health-wise the energy to endure right just this constant and is this is this in a personal or professional capacity personal personal capacity yeah. So this is when someone needs constant mirroring to, in some way that they feel to, for, that they can feel okay. Well, I guess yeah, and I am working with them, so it's both. Yeah. So um, the then what what does one do about that? Um, I mean, you're working with them at an office situation, but you're not in a therapist relationship to them. Okay, because <laughs> this comes up a lot because therapists get oh. get burned out on this ability to mirror. They can't mirror anymore. They can't they can't actually care, so they can't. They just get burned out. That's a we get a lot of that people coming on retreat because of such hard work. Uh, so here 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 she is in a situation where there is um, there's this uh, this someone who really needs a lot of reassurance, a lot of mirroring, a lot of confirmation over and over again what to do. The first thing to do is to be aware of ourselves and how we're responding and what's being triggered in us. Uh, in what way is this person also reflecting some need we have? What can we learn from this person? We learn this, we, we, we become as wise as possible about ourselves because that is the way that we will have the widest range of choice to not cause more suffering and maybe possibly to slightly reduce someone else's suffering. And then the, the, from that, from once we see how it's affecting us, we of course are meeting, meeting their needs with a feeling of compassion. And that is that we, our intent is coming from compassion. We recognize that something's out of balance in, the, in this situation and where we see the suffering in it. So we're mindful of the suffering and we're mindful of choosing compassion. It's a choice, compassion, until it gets developed so it becomes so spontaneous that we have no choice but compassion. And then we, uh, then we ask, well, what's wise here? What's wise? What's wise for uh, all parties? Wise for the other person, wise for ourselves, and wise for the relationship, which is yet a third mm. in that. There's three. And if you're in a working relationship with that person, that third is quite important. Because that, that relationship is not something that, it's not like a friend where you could see less of that friend if you're going to see that person anyway. And then um, the one way we respond uh, in a situation like this that I suggest oftentimes is a loving-kindness practice for that person that you don't tell them about, you just do the loving-kindness practice. Absolutely. And then you, then you, you, uh, you, through this inquiry aspect, you go, okay, how much, what is the, what is the balance for me and them? And you're, you're doing it as inquiry. I'm not, without judging this or not, no judging this person, what is a wise balance here? And you do that wise balance and, and you, you develop a, a compassionate ways of then turning away. And you just cease to feed that thing because the more, if, they, if it's, a, it's a bottomless well, 
So of course you can't do that. But then over time, if you, if you can keep your boundary, this will change over time because the person will turn elsewhere. Okay. But, but you're not, there's no meanness in this and you don't do, you don't like make fun of them behind their back or any of that because it, of your caring. But, but yeah, you, that I boundary mean, is your boundary too. Part of it's been, you know, like there's a forgiveness for when mm -hmm. they're asking that. I mean, the history of yeah. when that's occurred and yes. and I've given it away and then felt a price for it. Yes. So. Yeah, so when we give away too much, that is not, that's adding to the suffering in the world, not reducing <coughs> it. And because it, since it's a bottomless well, that isn't really going to solve the problem exactly. anyway. So just to know all that and this idea of space around this rather than feeling yourself caught in it, Oh, this being being in this kind of situation is like this. So create that space, and that space is of that's, equanimity. That's the space of mindfulness, and that, yes, the equanimity. equanimity part of mindfulness, the impersonal nature. That this is part of what human beings do, okay. and okay. so we're seeing its impersonal nature, not that particular person's personality or whether they're irritating or not. Okay. Just, oh, this is this is what human beings do. That normalization helps with the space in that way. So thank, thank you, you for that. I'm going to go on. So what we've talked about, uh, we've talked about mindfulness in its five parts, uh, uh, from alertness all the way through this impersonal, from the alertness, the staying with it, the, the fully receiving it, the inquiry, and then the, the equanimity around it that allows it to work. We've seen the mindfulness in its cognizing aspect, in its contemplative, reflective aspect, and seen it in its, uh, its inquiry aspect. And then, uh, we can, uh, uh, when we when we look at this, we see that that mindfulness is leading to insight. We're creating, we're developing mindfulness. We're developing loving kindness. We're developing compassion. We're developing concentration, all in the service of having insight. And why do we want to have insight? Because we're looking for insight that will lead to the end of suffering. We're looking to liberate the mind heart in immediate ways and in full ways in time. Mindfulness is dynamic. It's psychologically dynamic. It's got a dynamic to it. It's not a barcode reader. Oh, there's wanting here. It's not like that. It's got a felt sense to it. So what's being mindful of is felt directly. It's got a feeling associated with it. It's, it's, a, it's like this, is, is this little simple phrase is like you're knowing the body in the body in the first foundation of mindfulness. In the second foundation of mindfulness, you're knowing the pleasant and unpleasant within the pleasant or unpleasantness. You're knowing the ouch of it in the first noble truth. It's not a, yes, there's suffering in the world. Conceptually, I know that's true. That's a philosophical description of the world. That's just the beginning of the first noble truth. The second part, the second insight of the first noble truth is feeling the ouch of suffering. It's, this is, this is the, uh, this, the, the dynamic aspect of mindfulness. It's more than a spectrometer you know, that can analyze on a wave basis of there's this and this and this, whether it's a solid or a gas or whatever. It's not like that either. The mindfulness, although it has investigation, it's the felt sense of this and the felt sense of it in terms of what's wise and not wise. It's the felt sense <laughs> That it's, is the heart free or captured by this? It's it's a it's alive. You're you're in a you're in a dance with life. To <laughs> coin a phrase for a book title, but uh, it's it it is 
And would you choose otherwise? Would you choose otherwise? Don't you want to know the feel of a soft breeze on a warm day on your face? Rather than to know there's a breeze that's blowing at 10 miles an hour and it's coming from the northwest. <laughs> Is that what you would want in terms of living a life? I don't think so. When, um, when mindfulness is uh, out of balance, it can have an eroding quality. It, uh, we can, it can be a possessive. We can get too much this reflectiveness. We, we don't move on. We don't act. We get too reflective. We're, we're, we lose that feeling of dance with life. We can have too much inquiry. We're always trying to figure it out so that we can get it right, that we can be guaranteed. I just, in two recent retreats, I had uh, uh, people that were suffering over something. In one instance, uh, a, a, a woman was trying to make a romantic decision. And I'm just agonizing. She'd come in to one interview after another in relation to this romantic decision. And then in the other end, this guy was trying to make a decision about what to do with his life. And he had a specific thing that he was, that he was trying to say yes or no to. And, and they had been thinking about this for weeks, or in, in one instance, uh, actually, over a year. Uh, and so I listened to this and listened to this. And finally I said, so as I hear all of this, is your primary concern that, that, you, that you get it right? Or is your primary concern that you not get it wrong? In each instance, it was like the light bulb went on. The, the woman, when, when I said, get it wrong, she just started crying and crying. She, had, this whole time, had been afraid of getting it wrong. Not of getting it right, but getting it wrong. That was her fear. And so that she wasn't being mindful of what was really, what was there to be mindful of. She was afraid of getting it wrong. The same thing with the guy. Not all the tears in that instance, but he was so, he had been frozen around making this decision because he was afraid he wasn't going to get it right. And that's the, the uh, of getting it wrong. Because it's very different energy, getting it right versus getting it wrong. It's a whole different attitude. We can, we can, uh, we can, if, if we're, if we don't, if we don't keep looking at the very immediacy of the experience, we can form a concept around what's troubling us and we don't really understand what the question is or we don't understand what the decision is or we don't understand what the concern is. This space around mindfulness allows that to happen. Mindfulness is not a navel-gazing. It's not just being introspective in some self-absorbed way. We're not being obsessive in our mindfulness. We're, uh, we're, not, uh, we're not being fixated on outcome. We're not being self-referenced. This is in the mature mindfulness, I remind you. We're, 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 uh, we're willing to uh, face whatever's arising. We don't get caught in the ennui, this, or this kind of, when there's a restlessness, just the mindfulness itself is restless. It's, run, it's mindful of this, it's mindfulness of that, and there's, there's just all this running around to it. That's, that's, that's an immature mindfulness. It's not, it's not matured yet. 
And uh, there's not this vague sense of unease. We get past that vague sense of unease. When we start our practice, we often will discover that one of the things that's really difficult, why we don't want to be mindful, is that there is this, uh, there's this oftentimes a, a vague sense of unease in our minds. We do not like that. So it's hard to be present. We don't like that. We'll, we'll, we'll have old memories, you know, come up. We'd rather be with our old memories, even if they're difficult memories. Or we'll go to planning or fantasy. Now, we, we've got a certain degree of concentration, so when we our fantasies are so real, more real than any movie in that way, so we really go into our fantasies. This vague sense of unease that is part of the human condition. But as we mature in our mindfulness, that vague sense of unease just settles down because we understand it. We understand it in the context of the Buddha's teachings. And it changes it. it. changes it. It's a very wonderful thing. So practice leads where? It leads this mindfulness practice. It leads to our being present. We feel present in this moment. We feel present here, now. We feel present in the next moment. The next moment at work, at home, driving our car, more and more we have moments that are present. It's not a steadiness. It's not like, oh, we've got this. We, today we had 100 moments of, of being present. Tomorrow we have 120, and in four years we got 8,477. It's not like that. It, it egresses and ingresses. It goes, regresses. It goes out and back in. We're, how much mindfulness we have. But over time, there's, a, there's various plateau levels that we hit in terms of this amount of mindfulness that we have, mindful moments. And then there develops in us this wonderful thing called presence. There is a presence. You've been around people who have a lot of presence. They are mindful in a way that creates this presence. It's very delicious to be listened to by someone who's really present. It's really delicious. And when they're infused with compassion and loving kindness, that's a real treat. We each can develop more presence in this way through our practice. So the practice leads to being present. It leads to presence. It leads to purpose. We are mindful of our, of our purpose. And our purpose is tied in our intention the second uh, part of the Eightfold Path, so coming after wise understanding is wise intention. I intend this moment to moment in my life. We have all these different goals. I explained this at length in Emotional Chaos to Clarity. We have all these different goals, and we use different skillful means to reach those goals. But our intention is, is the way the Buddha is teaching it. doesn't change. The skillful means employed to get to the various goals can vary a lot, but we have core intentions that we're living our lives by. And that mindfulness is coupled with those core intentions to, give, to tell us how to behave in this moment, no matter what means we use. So for instance, the Buddha talked about uh, having the intention of not causing harm. That's one of his major teachings of intention is non-harm. So you might be trying to get something done at work, you might be doing something with your, your, your best friend, you're doing something with your family. The non-harming stays the same, although the skillful means what you're doing as an activity could change a lot. But this, this I intend not to cause harm, never varies at all. 
This gives continuity to life. It gives a sense of authenticity to ourselves. All from this very, starting with this very simple practice of mindfulness in the context of the Eightfold Path. And then finally, choice. Choice. <coughs> I choose non-suffering over suffering. My mindfulness, my compassion practice, my developing of intention, developing all the factors of the Eightfold Path has now given me choice. And I can choose non-suffering over suffering, at least in this moment, at least this time. Here's a time I can't. I know how to be with not being able to choose. I know how to be with the suffering as compassionately as possible in such a way that in the future I will have choice. So empowering what we're involved in here in this way. This having choice and it allows us then to open to life and as, as you know as life as it is with a kind of joy because there we are. We're available. We know we can choose non-suffering over suffering. We are very fortunate. Uh, end with uh, two little things. This is, um, uh, I, dated, I, I devoted uh, Dancing with Life to all the monastics keeping the tradition alive. And I quoted Ajahn Chah. There are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering, our regular untrained mind, the non-mindful life, the suffering that leads to the end of suffering, the mindful life when you're choosing to be present without the grasping. If you're not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. That's our choice, really. We're choosing to be with the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering. We're being with, we're mindful of it. That's where we gain the insight. That's where we gain the compassion. It's a courageous thing we do. It's a worthy thing we do. They are called noble truths for a reason. It is a nobling path. It is ennobling. More accurate name for them would be the four ennobling truths. And in fact, in translation from the Pali, that would really be accurate in many ways. This is uh, from... Uh, uh, the poet who, who was twice the poet laureate, the name Stanley Kunitz, and uh, he, he wrote this in his um, 80s. I think he was 85 when he wrote this. I have walked through many lives, some of them my own, and I am not who I was, though some principle of being abides from which I struggle not to stray. I have walked through many lives. How many lives have you walked through today? How many lives do you walk through repeatedly, over and over again, other people's lives, where you they're, they're walking through your lives, those you care about, those that you work closely with? I have walked through many lives, some of them my own, and I am not who I was, though some principle of being abides from which I struggle not to stray. Some principle of being, this intention, this in mindful intention is the through line. We're in all of these different situations, all these different lives, but there's some principle of being from which we struggle not to stray. That's the authenticity. That's the continuity of a life. Do we not all seek that? Is that not part of well-being? 
I've walked through many lives, some of them my own, and I am not who I was, though some principle of being abides from which I struggle not to stray. When I look behind, as I am compelled to look, before I can gather strength to proceed on my journey, I see the milestones dwindling towards the horizon and the slow fires trailing from the abandoned campsites over which scavenger angels wheel on heavy wings. He sees the losses of his life. He sees the rising and passing of all things. And it touches his heart. Oh, I have made myself a tribe out of my true affections. Those he cares about are his tribe. We each have a tribe. Oh, I have made myself a tribe out of my true affections, and my tribe is scattered. How shall the heart be reconciled to its feast of losses? In a rising wind, the manic dust of my friends, those who fell along the way, bitterly stings my face. It hurts. It hurts. It hurts broken hearts, uh, people that have left, people are no longer in our lives, people who have died. Yet I turn, I turn. So he turns towards life. Yet I turn, I turn, exulting somewhat with my will intact to go wherever I need to go. And every stone on the road precious to me. Stone, the difficulty. In my darkest night, when the moon was covered and I roamed through wreckage, a nimbus-clouded voice directed me, live in the layers, not on the litter. Live in the layers, not on the litter. Though I lack the art to decipher it, no doubt the next chapter in my book of transformations is already written. I am not done with changes. None of us are done with changes. Do we want to actively participate in those changes? Mindfulness is a tool for doing that. Let's close our eyes for a moment. Mm. Reflecting on what matters to you. What do you care about? What do you aspire towards? Not in terms of the external goals, but on a lived life. How do you wish to employ mindfulness? Any merit that's arisen from our practice this evening, we offer that merit to all beings without preference, without discrimination. May all beings find the path to the end of their suffering. Thank you for your kind attention. I hope to see some of you on Saturday. And uh, please remember. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.